first of all, I want to set the scene. This was uh, the, the late the late noughties, sorry, I was going to say late 90s. The late noughties. Naughty, I think the noughties was a great decade for re-kickstarting really superheroes. You had the X-Men at the start. You had the new Batman movies coming in. And it wasn't until, of course, 2008 that we saw the very first MCU movie. But let me set the scene of the first, first uh, the two years leading up to this. So two years leading up to the film, we saw the temporary conclusion, if you will, of two successful Marvel franchises. We had, In 2006, we had X-Men, The Last Stand, which would be the last proper X-Men film until they went back to first class. Now, the budget on that was $210 million. The box office was 460.4 million not the not, best not the kind of not kind of yeah not the kind of return you'd expect for an x-men movie but that was a blighted bloated movie that we have said time and i have said sorry time and again we're never going to cover on, on this podcast are we never going to cover it rob is there any chance we could cover it uh, look, people have asked and asked and asked we did the Phoenix Saga mm. in the animated series. We did the, the, the that's the final word on 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 that saga. But Rob, there's characters in there we haven't covered. Probably, I mean, there's there's there's, there's nooks and crannies to be explored. Mister Hollywood's nose is twitching. I'm saying never. <laughs> I'm saying never. <laughs> I mean, messages and vote your displeasure. You are never forcing me to watch that movie, to talk about it, to cover it. It's not happening. Move on, William. Move on. You forced me to watch Morbius. <laughs> forced me to watch Morbius. This is the I most did. abusive relationship I've ever been in. <laughs> Toxic Rob. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, in 2007, we had the end of the Raimi trilogy, Spider-Man 3, budget. 258 to 350 million box office 895 million so quite fair we looked we looked at it and we we we, i mean the 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 spider-man movies all hovered around that 800 Mm. million i think i think this might have been the highest grossing spider-man movie of the raimi of the raimi lot it was it was uh of course go back to our spider-man 3 episode for more information on it uh i i i don't think it's bad movie i think it's good it just has has its faults yeah, I, I think I dismissed it a lot after mm. it came out for some of the negatives, but upon, re- I don't think I'd ever rewatched it and then rewatched it for the podcast and mm. ended up really enjoying it. It's, 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 a, it's a lot better. There's, there's an old saying uh, that I've heard is, I used to think you were a dumb uh, POS. Um, but between then and now, so many other dumb POSs have come and gone <laughs> that you moved up the ranking by default. Um, <laughs> the two sweetest words in the English language, default. Also, stepping out of Marvel for a sec, the same year, 2008, saw the release of the highest grossing superhero film to date, proving indeed for the uh, birth of the mcu that there was a massive audience for it there was a massive audience for superhero films and of course that film was the dark knight in 2008 budget 185 million box office 1.006 billion dollars huge 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 i mean what was your Um, thoughts seeing that film um, I, I I enjoyed it a lot more than Batman Begins when Same. I saw it at the time. Um, I think it's held up a little bit better than Batman Begins. Um, yeah, um, and there were, of course there was all this Heath Ledger um, buzz and stuff at the time. Yeah, that, that um, 
that were kind of drove it. And I think we perhaps can't underestimate how popular the Joker as a character is to the Batman franchise oh, when you introduce it into the second movie. That seemed to really help. I'm not entirely sure I would go with your statement of this proved there was a massive market for I think Spider-Man doing Spider-Man movies doing 800 million proves that. This is a I don't obviously there's the first billion dollar. That's only 200 million more, you know. <laughs> Um, oh come it's, on! It's, it's a nice it's, it's milestone. A hop, skip, it's a hop, skip, and a jump from eight hundred mil. It's I think nice once you've milestone. got a superhero movie making eight hundred million, you know there's a massive audience for it. Okay, okay, um, not to diminish Raimi. It certainly is a milestone. Yeah, the, oh. the first billion dollar box office. Absolutely. Which brings us, of course, to Little Old Iron Man. Came out the same year as The Dark Knight. An independent movie. Let's not forget that it an is independent film. Marvel Studios with technically an independent movie just like george lucas was back in the day mm-hmm. budget 140 million dollars box office 585.8 million that's pretty good for a first go yeah for marvel's first swing at the plates fantastic but of course we don't stop there because it's been out for a while now 14 years nearly it's been out let's go into the dvd sales so the estimated, now we're talking domestic here, so this is just uh, the US, estimated domestic DVD sales, 183,597,134 dollars. Tell me streaming was a good idea. Tell me again <laughs> that streaming was a good idea. What, because of DVD versus DVD? Where's that money now? There's so many people talking about why these mid-level movies no longer exist. Mid-level movies that... I've seen Matt Damon talk about it. He said, the kind of movies I used to do that make me who I am don't exist anymore. The first Bourne film would not have been successful without DVD sales. Like These movies that they make their budget back on the DVD sales and the box office, mm. and now you've eliminated DVD sales from the thing, um, and the streaming rights are just pathetic. Well, it, so, doesn't, it doesn't stop there. You've got Blu-ray sales as well. Of course, the era of Blu-ray as it sweeps into the HD market. <laughs> uh, $14,871,002 million, which brings it up to a total estimated domestic video sales of one hundred ninety-eight, four hundred sixty-eight, one hundred thirty-six uh, million. So one hundred ninety-eight million four hundred four hundred sixty-eight thousand one hundred thirty-six uh, dollars. It's a large chunk of the box office, so it's really important to have that. I always it's, it's, just, it's, an, it's on top of the box office. On top that's of the not box part office. of the box office. Oh no, no, that's what I mean. It in took, comparison, in comparison yeah, it took to the five hundred eighty-five million mm. at the cinema, and then one hundred ninety-eight mm. million on on on, and that's just American, you know, home DVD and Blu-ray sales. I want to Huge. know how the streaming market copes with this. Hadrian copes with it. Well, like, uh, what, 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 what the fig? How can you compare the figures against that? Because it's hard to because you, you can't, don't buy the rights. Are terrible. Yeah, a, I listened to a massive documentary all about <laughs> the rise of Netflix and how they just bamboozled the the uh, production companies yeah. and convinced them it would be additional income as well as DVD sales. No, and the no, whole no. time they're planning to just take over. Um, no. I never, I never owned a, DVD, uh, a Blu-ray player. Never owned a Blu-ray player in my life. 
Uh, me um, neither, me neither. I, had, I never saw the point in it. Uh, I, I obviously, yeah. You have to have a large TV to make the best of Blu-ray, and I didn't have a large TV. No, I was living in bedsits and squats when I was when DVDs were coming out. Yeah. Uh, Blu-rays were coming out. I was like, I, I ain't, what's the point in this, baby? I, I you know. I, thought, I remember um, watching Black Hawk Down on a big TV and Blu-ray, and it's like, I get it, I get it, it's good. It's just I don't have any use for it. No, I was using yeah. my Xbox as my DVD player because I was like, Snap. I can't afford both. Snap. <laughs> <laughs> Man, okay, so that's the uh, the figures and the numbers. That's Will making sense that's, of the dollars and cents. We have made sense of the dollars and cents, but let's get into the nitty and gritty notes. So, Iron Man coming to the big screen has a long, long history, it seems. Oh. Let's go back. Cannot wait for this. this. This is good. This is good. Strap yourselves in. We've got a hell of a lot to get through, and it's going to be a pleasure. Oh, you're in for a treat. Anyway, that there's a very big dumpster I found some gold in. In April 1990, Universal Studios bought the rights to develop Iron Man for the big screen with Stuart Gordon to direct a low-budget film based on the property. Apparently, Gordon's film was set to centre on an older, retired Tony Stark living a reclusive life directly paralleling the later days of infamous aviator Howard Hughes. During the first act, there would be some kind of cataclysmic disaster that would cause Stark to dig out the old armour and spring into action once again. As soon as I saw the words Howard Hughes, I'm picturing Tony Stark with a long beard, his feet, Kleenex boxes on his feet and having a wee-wee in a jar. So you're picturing Mr. Burns from the episode of Simpsons where he's doing Howard. You're, you you have yeah. no... Will's entire historical context for everything comes through if it happened on Simpsons. That's, that's like what Grandpa Simpson said. Wow, Grandpa, how do you know so See? much about history? I pick it up mostly from sugar packets. <laughs> <laughs> that, the, that description of the Stuart Gordon yeah. um, plan for the movie, that really resonates with me mm. as... There was a lot of kind of movies, like high concept movies, like that. I feel in the in the in the nineties, um, like you wouldn't get the origin of. I, I, this is a weird. Thing. I, I've I've not heard this before, so I don't have my words fully formatted for you. But like, I feel like there was an awful lot of TV movies or low budget movies. Where I'd get very excited. I was starved of superhero movies as a kid. <laughs> so I'd search out anything that was kind of high concept, action, sci fi mm. related. And I just, that feels like the kind of thing you'd get an awful lot of, you know, that you wouldn't get the actual Iron Man movie you'd wanted. You get an inventor had an Iron Man thing once and now he puts it on as an old man. I, I'm not expressing myself very well, but that sounds yeah. like. It's spot on exactly what I would expect from a 90s movie, a, a low-budget 90s movie. That I, I like the sound of that, but I like the way they kind of did something similar to that with Ant-Man, where you had Michael Douglas playing Hank Pym, and he's the older mm. Ant-Man, you don't know about it, but it, it's, it's all there to be both the old person getting you know getting getting back into it almost but introducing a new character to and be they, the new they, guy. They could have done something similar with the the Tony Stark and and Rhodey characters. They could have had yeah. an old Tony Stark helping a young Rhodey with it anyway. A Batman Beyond-esque thing. Yeah. Oh, uh, oh yes. I can't wait for anything. I, I, I want them to do old Bruce Wayne, damn it, but never mind. By the end of the 90s, the rights switched to 20th Century Fox with Nicolas Cage and Tom Cruise both expressing interest in playing the role of Tony Stark. Also, Nicolas Cage just inserted himself into so many comic book stories like he, this, hasn't he? The guy wants to play every single uh, character in every mm, single yeah. bloody comic does, book movie. He does. I think I think we should get we should let him. 
personally. But... I want a new Ghost Rider movie and franchise yes. at Marvel, and I want Nicolas Cage playing old Johnny Blaze, like in the comics, who comes who comes out of retirement to usher the new kid into the role. Kevin Feige, Fiji. Kevin Figfeich, Fiji, if you're listening, which I assume you are, because we mentioned you several times in this, make it happen. Make it so. Get on that phone to Cage. He's not exactly uh, starved for work. Actually, no, he is. He, 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 he needs to pay off that massive tax bill. <laughs> and speaking of tax bills, make Wesley Snipes blade again. <laughs> do it. No, give Mush- Mushar Ali a go. I like him. He's good. I do as well, but I, I, I miss Wesley Snipes. Okay, We, we all miss Wesley Snipes, baby. <laughs> uh, also, Jeff Vintar and Iron Man co-creator Stan Lee co-wrote a story for Fox, which Vintar adapted into a screenplay. It included a new science fiction origin for the character and featured Modoc as the villain. Tim Rothman, sorry, Tom Rothman, uh, president of production at Fox, credited the screenplay with finally making him understand the character. Shortly after, Quentin Tarantino was approached to write and direct the film for Fox before Fox sold the rights to New Line Cinema. Quentin Tarantino doing a superhero movie. There's a lot of there's a lot of things like that. Like David Lynch was going to do Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I never. I mean, I approached to. I think it means their name was on a long list of people. I I know, but still, it's worth worth looking at that list every now and again just to see how how weird history would have been. Would have nice to see if Quentin Tarantino did it. We'd finally get to see Tony Stark with the foot fetish. Anyway. <laughs> he's footman anyway by july 2000 the film was being written for new line by ted elliott terry rosio and tim mccanley's with mccanley's script using the idea of a nick fury cameo to set up his own film so already people are edging towards Let's set up, let's get the ball rolling on other characters. Let's make this a launching point for other characters, maybe. That's interesting, isn't it? And that Nick Fury had been um, identified, especially because uh, by 2000, we have already had the definitive Nick Fury, as we've looked at. We've already had Mm -hmm. David Hasselhoff's Nick Fury um, in uh, in, uh, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. David Hasselfury, yeah, that was was an experience. Apparently that was good, but apparently X-Men Last Stand, not happening. And Anyway, <laughs> never happening. Never happening, baby. After this, despite McCanley submitting a script, New Line took a unique approach to writing the film script. Again, hiring David Hayter, David S. Goya, and Mark Protasevich to simply sit in a room and simply talk on camera about Iron Man for a few days. After this, Hayter was hired in 2004 to write a script. On the experience, Hayter said, and I'm not going to do the Solid Snake voice, Although I really want to. I don't know what that means, but okay. It was very unusual. And it kind of felt like they were Can you explain why this is happening for all of us? Okay. uh, Some people will get it, but I'll I'll stop doing the voice. David Hayter, who also did the screenplay for X-Men 2, uh, more famously provided the voice of the Uh, video game character, Solid Snake. Have you ever played Metal Gear Solid, Rob? Have you ever played that? One of the greatest games of all time? Yeah. Yeah. It's It's a lot of, like, hiding... Hiding's it is fun, rubbish. Rob. It's absolutely rubbish. 
Hiding's fun, Rob, and it did it well. Shush. Mm, anyway, okay. David it was a, Like, it's a video game where you don't do anything for ages and then press X to jump out at someone. It was rubbish. No, you, there's a lot of boss battles. You get to fight a tank near the beginning of the game. Anyway, it was very unusual. It kind of felt like they were developing the screenplay for a lot less than it would cost them typically to develop a screenplay. Basically, it was the three of us just fanboying out about Iron Man and all the things that make Tony Stark interesting and how to conceptualise the movie. So, that's a bit wishy-washy, isn't it? It seems like they're just trying to brainstorm ideas in a meeting rather than actually get script done. Yeah, but it seems exactly like a very cheap way of getting a story together. And I've been, as a creative person, I've had the same thing. I've been brought in by like companies that want to be like radical and cool and instead of paying <laughs> me and cool. instead of paying me to do a job they've got a bunch of creatives together mm. for tuppence halfpenny and and said it's a brainstorming session and after doing about 3 or 4 of them I've come away going they've just they've just like essentially got themselves like an advertising campaign for virtually nothing like the beginning of an advertising campaign or a marketing campaign or whatever for nothing like for a very small amount of money um i don't know at what stage um in their career especially david s goya in the mm. two, in 2000 around 2004 mm. oh, goya was He'd already Goya had already written loads of stuff then for TV and movies and things. Didn't, so he, didn't he do stuff for the Dark Knight trilogy or something? He wrote. I think he wrote all of them. Wow. Okay. Um, and he's also uh, uh, wrote lots of uh, DC comics as well. Wow. So, Hater also rewrote scripts that had been written by Jeff Vintar and Alfred Goff and Miles Miller, which had included the villa villain, sorry, the Mandarin and Pepper Potts as a love interest. Hater removed the Mandarin. The villain, the, the Mandarin and Pepper Potts as love interest. I should, I should have put a comma there. The villain, that, that, you know what I mean. Hater removed the Mandarin and instead chose... I love the idea of Iron Man versus Mandarin, but also at the same time, they're in love. <laughs> Hater removed the Mandarin and instead chose to pit Iron Man against his father, Tony Stark. No. Sorry, Howard Stark. Sorry, Howard Stark. Who becomes War Machine? Hater said... You want to try to mirror your hero with your villain as much as possible for his oh, reasoning God. behind making Howard the villain. Oh, all these people that have never read comics making these movies, they try exactly the same thing all the time, constantly. It's so frustrating. It is very frustrating. Really, I think the antagonist should be virtually exactly the same as the protagonist, <laughs> but dark. So if we can have him fight his brother or his father or... Oh, God. Just... just just do something else. Just do Modoc. He's a giant deformed baby man we f- <laughs> who can and hypnotize we- people. And we finally get him in the next Ant Man film. And I can't wait to see Modoc yeah, on the out big in, out in Feb. Well, we get. I don't know what we're going to get. It looks like some version of Modoc. We'll see. Well, it deals with the multiverse. We'll see. Anyway, David Hayter also made Bethany Cabe the film's love interest over Potts. Bethany Cabe is that a character that rings a bell? It should be Bethany Cable. Cable. Okay. Yes, it is. Yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. <laughs> Bethy Cable is a is a is a um, a character from the Iron Man stories. She's a love interest of uh, of Tony Stark's. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Next up, this is when Marvel Studios is formed in two thousand and four. Marvel Studios enacted a plan to produce films independently, releasing them through a distribution deal with Paramount Pictures. Marvel began shoring up a slate of films, and when then chairman and CEO Avi. Uh, Viarid quit over creative disagreements. Kevin Feige was promoted to 
president of production just as filming on a movie called Iron Man began. Looking back on his departure, Avi Arad recollected. The company was growing fast. We were making movies on our own pocketbooks. I was always, and you can talk to my friends and enemies, and they'll tell you probably the weakest point, I am a one-man show. I make mistakes and I make my successes. They wanted to turn it into a large company. So there'll be a team of people from comics that make notes on the script. Even some board members started reading the script. It was almost comical for me. One morning I looked around uh, and I said, I think this baby is in good shape. I think everybody will be happier if they have creative committees, which I was allergic to. A movie uh, has a singular vision, and for that, you'd better hire a director that has the same singular vision and a writer so it becomes a huge industry when you're on set. But giving the, <laughs> giving the baby the birth, it takes one mummy, and that started moving away from me. I said, you know what? I don't want to do that. I know I don't have patience or temperament to get notes. I'm very proud of Kevin because I think... He is today the number one producer in the business. Avi Arad is a huge, huge figure in the history of Marvel Comics. Um, he came in in the mid-90s um, when Marvel... Uh, like, he came in... I think he ran Toy Biz. Mm. He was the head of Toy Biz, the toy company. And when that figure, Ron Perlman, was buying Ooh. up all these different companies and merging them and stuff, um, Avi Arad came across from Toy Biz to Marvel. Um, and he's the one that's kind of, from the 90s on through, spearheaded Marvel outside of comic books um animation deals tv deals movie deals we would not have had x-men or the spider-man movies without avi arid um he was the the father of marvel studios um mm. and it was a huge momentous moment when before that first movie comes out avi just leaves <laughs> um, and it's it's yeah and it's one of those was he pushed out did he leave kind of things um giving up control he'd been acting he'd been able to act pretty much independently as like the 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 you know the the chiefdom of this little outfit for a, for a, for a, you know a decade or so um and then it starts to become a, a, an actual studio beyond him and yeah. there's a lot more involvement look the marvel studios was avi arid's idea mm. and it began because whilst they had positive experiences with um x-men and spider-man they there were and, and they were consulted on those movies they had these movies where, like, um, Daredevil, Elektra, Fantastic Four and stuff, where they weren't consulted and where their ideas weren't listened to. And so he was like, this is BS. Let's get all the characters back <laughs> and let's be the people that are in charge. Um, yeah, what a moment. They kept the rise of Kevin Feige then. I know. Would you, do you think in a multiverse scenario we'd have seen, we could see... Avi Harrod as the main Marvel guy. I mean, would he do the same job as just as well as Kevin Feige? Because he's done pretty, pretty bloody well. Well, it, um, if he's allergic to the um, to the studio system, if he's allergic to um, conference and committees making these decisions, and there being lots of different kind of involvement in 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 the movies from different you know creative minds and things i don't know from what i from what it looks like to me whoever is running things at marvel studios since the beginning which looks like heaven feast to me i'm sure there are other talented people in key positions they've been able to balance the thing of it's a studio so there's lots of involvement but mm. we come together and we have kind of a singular sort of we, we come with a singular vision yeah um we have come with a good focus i don't know it's hard to say hard to say 
Right, so we get down to the pre-production of Iron Man. In November 2005, Marvel Studios worked to start development from scratch and announced Iron Man as their first independent feature because the character was their only major one, not already depicted in live action. Yeah, it'd be, mm, it'd yeah. be um, Spider-Man, Hulk and X-Men, so already farmed out. That's amazing, though, because Marvel has such a large roster of characters. It's it's almost... I know the main ones have been done, like the most popular ones, but it's nice to just go, oh, I can... Uh, we can just dig into that one now. That's also quite popular. Yeah, but it's... So when you're looking at what's popular for a movie, you have to look mm. beyond comic books, really, um, and stuff that's like that proven track record of, of capturing people. I mean... Spider-Man and uh, Spider-Man and X-Men are sales driven like they're just massive comic books that attracted millions and millions and millions of people mm. and then they've been on TV in various forms which worked and and you know made money um Hulk you know with the 70s TV show and big comic book sales as well Iron Man doesn't have that his 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 comic book sales have never done anything spectacular He's never been the number one character at the company ever. Um, he's never had the number one book, and he didn't. I mean, he had a cartoon series; it didn't mm. seem to go terribly well. All that kind of stuff, you know. It's um, it's hard to know what you're looking beyond for, other than we're going to roll the dice. Let's roll the <laughs> dice with this. And when Marvel are, are, are in charge, they can say, "Well, this is one of our most enduring characters mm. and interesting, and it can be cool and badass. It can be a real action movie." Okay, continuing. According to associated associate producer Jeremy Latcham, we went after about 30 writers and they all passed, saying they were interested in the project due to both relative obscurity of the character and the fact it was solely a Marvel production. Early scripts of the film also directly referenced Sony Pictures' Spider-Man 2 by identifying Stark as the creator of Otto Octavius's bionic arms. That's amazing. I'd that never is. heard that. I've never heard that before. Um, just, oh, just imagine if that linked in with Spider-Man. God, that would have been great. Well, spoiler well, it alert. Might, it, might not have, it might not have been necessarily saying this is this is in the same word. It, it might have been of sort of saying... It might not have said Dr. Octopus's arms. It might have said he built some unique bionic arms for that guy who went... You know, you could imagine it both... Yeah. In, you know, it happened again maybe in the, in the MCU world. Who knows, but yeah. That would have been That's- a nice wink. In April 2006, John Favreau was hired to direct the film. Favreau had wanted to work with Marvel producer Avi Arad on another film after they both worked on Daredevil. I forget he directed Daredevil. Well, no, he didn't direct Daredevil. He was just on Daredevil, wasn't he? He, he plays Foggy Nelson. He plays Foggy Nelson. Yeah. I was about to say, wait a minute, did he direct Daredevil? No, Can't no, have. no. The film was bad. He's usually good at films, John Favreau. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he'd, uh, you know, with Maid and Swingers. Oh, Swingers. Um, and then good film. Zarathusa. Ah, that came. I, I did see that name come up. Never seen it. If it is, have you seen it? Is it any good? I was working at a cinema when it when it was out, so I've seen a lot of it. <laughs> seen a, um, I haven't seen it. Seen a lot it's of fun. it. It's fun. It's it's a Juma- It's like the it's the unofficial Jumanji sequel. Oh, okay. It's, um, from the it's 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 like Zarathusa from the same world as Jumanji. It's about another board game that comes to life. But uh, this is a space a space board game, like sci-fi board game, and the house ends up floating in space and stuff. Oh, it's that good. sounds it's good amazing. Fun. And it was his first time playing with um, special effects and mastering that. Oh, nice. 
On developing a movie with CGI, Favreau said, I've always been very reticent to use CGI to the extent that it has been used by other filmmakers. I think that now, through motion capture and the integration of miniatures with CGA, like in King Kong, I'm starting to be a lot more convinced by what the technology can do. But the idea of using CGI and relying solely on that to tell your story those days are past. I think that integrating practical filmmaking and augmenting it with CGI is the key to making it an emotionally involved story. And I think that's what we've really seen with the MCU, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's a lot of CGI, I think, with the MCU. No, but he's saying yes. <laughs> it's integrating practical filmmaking and yeah. with augmenting it with CGI, and that's what they do. Ah, uh, yes, of course. Sorry, I'm, I was trying to th- figure out that, because I was thinking, do they have a lot of props in those films? Because all I see is just big green screen rooms. Well, they do. They have props, they have sets, they have actors, they have oh, practical yeah. filmmaking. Okay, yeah, yeah. That and then sense. they have an amazing backdrop, yeah. There we go, that's, that's it. Hollywood special effects legend Stan Winston, a fan of the comic book and his company, who Favreau worked with on Zathura... Built metal and rubber versions of the armor. Amazing! They got Stan Winston involved. The guy's a legend. I did much prefer, like, I love the armor in the first two movies, and I much prefer when I much prefer the physical, the fact that he was wearing physical armor. Yeah, not um, the uh, I, nanobot I'm, thing swarming all over him. Well, it's not just that; it's the fact that the CGI armor. I, I, I'm not saying I can tell it's CGI, but I think I can. It just doesn't. It, I want him to wear something proper. Yeah, yeah, um, and sense. move around like that. Yeah, I don't know, but but it does match nanobot armor in the comic, so you know I'm probably wrong. Ah, uh, that's all right. The director found the opportunity to create a politically ambitious ultimate spy movie in Iron Man, citing inspiration from Tom Clancy, James Bond, and RoboCop, and compared his approach to an independent film. If Robert Altman had directed Superman and Batman Begins. <laughs> I don't know, Favreau. If, yeah, if you want to compare yourself to Robert Altman is a is a bit of a, a bit of a stretch there, um, but sure. Yeah, sure. Favreau planned to cast a newcomer in the title role, as those movies don't require an expensive star. Iron Man's the star. The superhero is the star. The success of X Men and Spider Man without being star driven pieces reassures executives that the film does have an upside commercially. Like I thought that 100 yeah. percent at the time. I I yeah. I did not think there needs to be a, a famous person in the role. Nope. Same with Cap. Same with you know those ones. It, it was. It felt, yeah, it felt a little odd at the start to have Robert Downey Jr. doing it. Well, I'm just trying especially because f- he was kind of washed up as well. Yeah, I I will get onto that, but I like mm. that. But uh, so I'm just trying to think back to all the Marvel uh, movies we've watched and trying to think which ones had the main character as an already established star. Incredible Hulk. Incredible Hulk, obviously. Yeah, you had that. Black That's Widow, it. obviously. Black Widow was in the. Oh well, you know. that, that, but, that, but yeah, but she didn't get a movie until like last year, brother. <laughs> like she, you know, she was she was had a role after being. A, I wouldn't. I don't. She, Scarlett Johansson. I don't think was a box office name. Put her in a movie and people go to pay to see her until after she was in Avengers and Marvel stuff. 
Okay, okay. Right? Okay. Like, yeah, oh, it's the girl from Ghost World. Cool, I'll pay <laughs> and see that movie. That wasn't a thing. That was not a thing. Okay. Oh, the, the weird girl from The Man Who Wasn't There? I'll take my money. Like oh, that. The Man Who Wasn't There. What a film. Mm. But that, that, film. that's not a thing. That's not mm. a box office name, is it? Yeah, yeah. Ed Norton is Ed Norton. When Incredible Help Call comes out, he's Ed Norton. One of the most he's, expensive stars to hire. But he's been the front of, of box office hits and mm. successful movies and stuff so that that's a i don't think anybody else really no that, as, that, as the as the front i mean there was a lot of there was a lot of publicity around anthony hopkins for the thor movie which probably helped i mean um, he wasn't exactly the main character i'm talking about the no i'm saying i'm saying yes but i'm saying there was a lot of publicity mm. in the pr in the promotion the trailer they put anthony hopkins front and center mm. so that that no doubt helped that and natalie portman was front and center as well and she yeah. was a yeah. star um you know she's a she's a, a name i like that approach However, we get back. Before the screenplay was prepared, he had to appro- he approached sorry he had approached Sam Rockwell to play the part. Rockwell was interested, but Favreau changed the decision after the screen test of Robert Downey Jr. I'm a huge Sam Rockwell fan. Me too, um, and I, I think him. I would have enjoyed that. But I, you know, yeah. Every time I talk to someone about Sam Rockwell, I forget his name, but I go to what I call him. I call him the world's most attractive hobo. That's interesting. He's, he's a bit. He's a bit rough around the edges. He is. Yeah. Have you seen Mr. Wright? No. Which one's that one again? It's the one where the girl falls in love with a guy. It turns out he's a hitman. That's fun. Well, what's about the one where he plays the game show host who's apparently oh, working for the CIA? God, that's so good. That's George Clooney's first movie. Yeah, his directorial movie. Um, shoot, I can't remember the name, but I, I kind of want to see that film. That, I want to see not, more Sam seen Rockwell. It, it's really good. It's I really see, good. I can't we'll, think the name of it now, but it's a really good film. He was great in Moon. I like <clears> Moon. <throat> yeah, yeah, Moon's good. So, Favreau chose Downey because he felt the actor's past made him an appropriate choice for the part, explaining the best and worst moments of Robert's life have been in the public eye. He had to find an inner balance to overcome obstacles that went far beyond his career. That's Tony Stark. Can't disagree with that. Huh, maybe. maybe. I don't okay, know. Tony I don't Stark didn't wake up in a bush Stark. or something. Uh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Come like, on out with it. <laughs> what other what what character doesn't have to find an ill balance to overcome obstacles that go far beyond their career? Like what what are you talking about? You could apply that to Captain America, you could apply it to Hulk, you could apply it to what are you talking about? I don't like I understand what it what it's saying is yeah. what they're saying is he he liked the drink and he was reckless. And yeah. they want that, but they can't say that. <laughs> they They're can't both say alcoholics. We, we hide him for the drink and the drugs and the reckless youth because that's <laughs> we think that's cool and that connects yeah. with. They can't say that. Okay, right? it's a bit of a it's um, a bit of a wishy washy statement from Favreau. Well, apparently, not Man, all dumpsters contain gold, Rob. See, the thing is, like Favreau to me is one of my guys hmm. because, like. Like I was young when his first cool movies were out, um, kind of like Kevin Smith to a certain mm. extent, and and kind of those were movies that I came up really and Robert Rodriguez came up really liking. Oh yeah, um, and it's slightly disappointing to see him go to when he and he had this amazing series on HBO, which is a roundtable talk discussion with actors um, and directors and people in Hollywood, and it's like really just. Just them. It's not like an interview. It's amazing. They do loads of it. It's like it's like the, they invented the podcast. Yeah, right? I get but it's the with idea. lots of actors. It's a great. It's a great series. 
And he's so upfront and kind of like, um, it feels like he's very honest in it. And I really connected to Favreau through that kind of stuff. And now, every time I read some of his quotes these days, it feels like, oh, he's properly in the Hollywood system now. It's just wishy-washy statements and (laughs) disappointing. (laughs) Disappointing. It's like hearing something from Simon Pegg these days. You used to be one of us. You used to be one of us, Simon Pegg. I feel that with Simon Pegg so much. I, oh, it's, it's, it's weird. Robert Downey Jr. described his portrayal of Tony Stark as a challenge of making a wealthy establishmentarian, establishmentarian weapons manufacturing, hard-drinking, womanizing prick into a character who is likable and a hero. <laughs> it's a challenge. Yeah, man. Yeah, I think they found... I think they, I think they, it was the same challenge that they had in 1963 when they introduced the character. <laughs> The script was not completely finished when filming began, since the filmmakers were more focused on the story and the action, so the dialogue was mostly ad-libbed throughout filming. Director John Favreau acknowledged this made the film feel more natural. Some she- some, sorry, some scenes were shot with two cameras to capture line imp- lines improvised on the spot. Robert Downey Jr. would ask for many takes of one scene since he wanted to try something new. Gwyneth Paltrow, on the other hand, had a difficult time trying to match Downey with a suitable line as she never knew what he would say. I think this is such a key part of why this film is so different from Mm. any other superhero movie. And they've never replicated it since, I don't think. Um, Iron Man 2 is a little bit more normal Feels a little bit more scripted Mm. This, like a lot of people talk about We've got an awful lot of feedback Which we're going to get to And there's a lot of people I've heard from that say Oh, it's a basic story It's a basic It's a good start for Marvel But it's basic I'm going, guys, I don't think you're getting Like, this script It's not a script, sorry The dialogue in this movie is so different, so fresh. Yeah. It sparkles. The chemistry between the three leads is phenomenal. It it just pops off the screen in a way that no, there is not a single other. Like watching, watching um, um, Downey and 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 Paltrow. Um, it's kind of like watching Hepburn and Tracy. It's like watching some of the old screwball comedies of the 40s and 50s. Like, there mm. are elements of, like, Bringing Up Baby and His Girl Friday in it. Like, they're just... There's this... It's just... I could... I, it's so good. I could ditch all the Iron Man stuff. And, and <laughs> can I just have more of Downey and Paltrow flirting and fighting and arguing? And It's so good. Yeah. It's going back to it. I'll get. We'll get onto obviously what I thought, but wow, you're right. It did spring from the screen. However, Jeff Bridges wasn't initially on board with the improvising, as he said, "It was so lucky to have John there and Downey because both of them are terrific improvisers, and we spent a couple of weeks working on the script and rehearsing together because we didn't like the original script, and we thought, oh yeah, we fixed this, fixed that." Then came the first day of shooting and Marvel kind of threw out our script that we had been working on and said, no, that's no good. It's got to be this and that. And so there was a lot of confusion about what our script was and what we were going to say. It drove me absolutely crazy until I made a slight adjustment in my brain that was, Jeff, just relax. 
you're making a $200 million student film. Just relax and have fun. That kind of did, that kind of did the trick because here I get to play with these two incredible artists and just jam. And that's what we ended up doing. God, I love Jeff Bridges. <laughs> I love him so much. And that's just a great way of approaching it. He's not he's not doing a Christian Bale slap, slamming things to the ground going, that's it, I'm not walking off the set. He's like, okay, I'm going to have to <laughs> change my attitude about this to work with it. And it... Yeah, man. man. What a great, what a great thing to do. According to John Favreau, when making this film, there was a lot of pressure for it to succeed. This was particularly due to Marvel using their characters as collateral when they received a $525 million seven-year deal called a non-recourse debt facility, allowing them to make original films based on their properties. Marvel wanted to have complete creative control over their characters, build a film library, and greater pr- uh, profit potential than the deals they've linked, they've linked with other studios owning the film rights to their characters. Marvel also changed its name to Marvel Entertainment Incorporated to establish a Hollywood presence. If the film didn't succeed, Marvel would have lost the intellectual property rights to their library. Now that... Ooh. Just... To- just in case that didn't come across to you, what this is saying is that Marvel, as an independent film company here, needed to raise money to make these movies. They did not want to go to a production company, uh, work with 20th Century Fox or Sony, and say, you you know, we'll make the movie together, you fund the movie, and all that kind of stuff, because they were sick and tired of having those movie companies interfere with how the characters and, and and making it all different. They didn't want another Fantastic Four. They didn't want another Daredevil or Punisher. So they have to raise a huge amount of money. They made two movies on the back of this, didn't they? Um, yeah, two movies on the back of this. Just just counting the Iron Man movies, yeah. I mean, the third one, um, we know how much the third one grossed in. It was incredible. No, sorry. The, the, this $525 million deal, oh, I'm assuming, is for Marvel Studios as a whole. Yeah. So maybe they funded all of the um, first three or four movies on the back of that 500 mil. Um, we'll perhaps have to do the numbers. But to get that loan, they put up the rights to their characters as collateral. If the movies had flopped and Marvel mm. could not have repaid that 500 mil loan, then the debt company... Whoever they borrowed the money from, the bank, whatever, would have had ownership over the characters that they put up in the deal. Like that is that is a the biggest gamble you can possibly make. Oh, you are gambling everything. They would have lost everything. They would have lost everything. They bet the farm to make these movies happen, and that's not something I knew until Will did this research. In yeah. Incredible. Obviously, we have the uh, hindsight of knowing it went well, but that is a bum clencher of a deal, isn't it? That is a it, real. It, it, I can't. I cannot believe it. Mm. I can't believe they would. They would have gambled quite so much. And look, it influenced. You know, the, the, it's why these movies are hundred and something million dollar movies, and not two three hundred dollar movies. Yeah, three hundred million dollar movies because they don't have the. They, they are an independent company working with just that cash. Mm. Wow. 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 The line, I am Iron Man, was ad-libbed by Robert Downey Jr. 
Producer Kevin Feige approved using it in the final cut of the film and credits this with his decision to largely do away with secret identities in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Thor's alter ego, Donald Blake, is similarly not used. I think this was the right decision. Apart uh, from obviously Spider-Man, I mean, who else has a secret identity in the MCU? Well, it depends on the era. I mean, at the start, everybody... Um, yeah. Everybody has a secret identity at the start, literally, all of them. So, I don't know, it's hard. I think the secret identity um, lends itself to an awful lot of really good um, tension and storytelling, but stuff that tends to come from interaction with supporting casts, um, and these movies tend to do away with supporting casts to a large extent. You Mm. get, like, one, two, you know, um, and, and... that it lends itself better to things like cliffhangers, ongoing on, ongoing stories, um, more more personal life tensions and dramas. Yeah. And so I think they work a lot better in a, in, a, in a Disney Plus series. Um, like they worked quite nicely in uh, Ms. Marvel. Um, oh yeah, that worked especially well. It's. I was frustrated that by the end the whole family knew, but uh, whatever. <laughs> That's just you. I was ha- I was fine. Um, <laughs> reflecting back on the film, looking back on getting Marvel Comics adapted into films, Avi Arid said, "When we got involved with Marvel, Marvel had a very low self-esteem. It seemed like no- it seemed like something that is old. Comics were very niche. No one saw the value of it. No one wanted Spider-Man. It took a while to unite the rights, and in those days, those rights were, I would say, they were sloppily put together. And Marvel at the time." Tended to sell the properties for anything they can get. (laughs) We licensed studios. We participated in reviews on films like X-Men, Spider-Man, Daredevil, Hulk, 2005's Fantastic Four. At the time, I was running a company plus getting the movies made and all, in all fairness, on the job learning of the live action business. Kevin was working for Lauren Shuler Donna on X-Men and he became basically the guy that will tell me really what's going on and when. The first MC movie uh, we made was Iron Man. New Line didn't know what to do with it. I don't want to put anyone's name on it because if they missed it, they just didn't get it. And that's totally legitimate. And we had two movies to start with. We had that and we had Hulk with Universal. Universal. The key issue was Hulk was known. So we thought it gives us a leg up. We had the relationship with Universal, specifically on Hulk. All these movies were licensed when I was 11 and I'm 70 now. All of these things were old deals, weren't good deals. I mean, that's a little exaggeration, but he's, he, I mean, he's right. Marvel, like Marvel got played. Yeah, Marvel absolutely. comics got played. They went into the entertainment world and... They cut all these deals, not understanding the worth and value of what they had, and they got terrible deals because they didn't they didn't get it. They didn't know how to swim with sharks. Mm. Um, and in Hollywood, it's nothing but sharks that want to give you nothing, take your character, and exploit it to make more money. Now, there's a little irony in that. If you just look at some of these creators that you might say were created these characters and were exploited by Marvel and never got to see all the profits. But, um, it, yeah, it's some bad, bad, bad deals were made Absolutely. all over town. We've covered it quite a bit in previous episodes, especially, uh, as of course, you've mentioned Ron Perlman. Not that one. Awful man. Anyway. Well, that's not... Uh, I, I, I meant really that 
when Marvel went to market, mm. when Marvel in the 60s, 70s went to the wider entertainment world mm. and said, who wants to give us money to make a TV show of Spider-Man and Hulk and all these kind of stuff, and who wants to license these characters? They made terrible deals because they did not, understand the entertainment industry and the deal and also the entertainment industry wasn't th- that interested mm. so but those deals were were made for dozens of decades and decades and decades you know um you think of how sony have still got spider-man and that is not something that Marvel can put a stop to, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, Marvel, Marvel. It's only because Disney bought Fox that they got the X Men rights back and the Fantastic Four rights back, and these are not great deals. But they were made yeah. a long time ago. Absolutely. Kevin Feige looks back on the first Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk as an interesting challenge. I always sort of believed that we could do it ourselves from a creative point of view and a management point of view. From a funding point of view, it's a whole other story. And that's where David Maisel and Avi put together what became the financing to become Marvel Studios, which I was very happy about because that meant we got to make the calls. For as much pressure as that was to say, can you go from single-handedly, I don't mean me, I mean the studio, single-handedly producing zero movies on your own to producing two movies in 2008. I said yes, because what else am I going to say? <laughs> no, <laughs> we didn't have Spider-Man. We didn't have Fantastic Four. We had the B-list characters. That was the LA Times or somebody's headline. I never really thought that because I knew that Iron Man was really cool and Hulk was arguably, next to Spider-Man, the biggest character we had, I thought they all had amazing potential. But the goal was to deliver these two movies and make the best Iron Man film we could and make the best version of Hulk. Even coming five years after another version of Hulk. It wasn't this. It wasn't. This is the first of a 22 movie cinematic saga. I think that's the real important thing to remember looking back at this. Mm. There was no plan for Avengers. Nope. There, there, There wasn't. Would it have been a good idea? Sure. (laughs) But they were just trying to not lose the rights to all their characters. They're just trying to make a good movie, get that money back, pay that debt off, and and get going from there. It was baby steps. Baby steps to get a ball rolling. Yeah, but but, uh, yeah, baby steps, you leave some threads. You leave a door open. Yeah. Right? And I think, yeah, carry on. Carry on. Looking back at his first appearance uh, at Comic-Con in 2006, Feige commented, I think that panel, in a large part, was to say that Marvel's making movies themselves now, and here's the information we have at this point. My favourite part of that is when somebody asks, Is the Avengers ever possible? We had no real plans at that point. It was a pipe dream. So much of, we- <laughs> so much of what we've done is based on a pipe dream. <laughs> Yeah, man, really. Man. And you know, like like we said, like I think if you look at and I don't want to you know really punch down at DC, but yeah. You think about I watched I think it's the Batman versus Superman movie where they <sighs> introduce all of the Justice League mm. in one go. Yeah. And then we don't get any movies building them up, we just nope. get the Justice League movie. Like <clears throat> that rush to do it. It felt rushed. That rush to do it. And I've heard mm. Kevin Feige talk and Aviara talk about the plan is make the best movie we can. Yes. Not 
not build a universe, not build a cinematic empire, not build a team. Make the best Iron Man movie we can. Then make the best Hulk movie we can. Leave doors open. Leave, you know, threads dangling. And then, hey, look, it all went very well. Let's do the... And obviously they put it in the contracts. They smartly locked these stars up for a long period of time if all went well. And it did. And they were able to. But it wasn't as it as other people would have done and it would have been done in the past we do an avengers movie straight away mm. yeah they re- they they did the right pacing here so that brings me on to how the movie was received so iron man received two oscar nominations best sound editing and best visual effects but lost to the dark knight for sound editing and the curious case of benjamin button for visual effects I wonder which film has stood the test of time the best. Dark Knight, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I've, I've heard no one talk about the curious case of Benjamin Button in, in a long, it long time. It passed into pop culture, didn't it, as a thing of... Uh, Briefly. Just referring to, like... No, it still, it still does. It's uh, If you if you want to talk about, I don't know, a young person that looks old, that's the reference you'll make. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's, it's in there, definitely. Okay. In 2022, just last year... The film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. You can't argue with that, I don't think. You know That's a high honour for a film. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but, hey, we talk about awards, we talk about high honours. What did, what did the people really think, Rob? What did the people really think? <laughs> Tell us what think? the people think, Mr Hollywood. Well, Mr. Hollywood uh, doesn't dilly-dally when it comes to the will of the people, which is why he logged on to Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> uh, Rotten Tomatoes, it has a score of 94%, with an audience score of 91%. That is incredible. There are it's some amazing really, really movies that don't, re- yeah. don't reach the 90s%, percent. there's still some great movies in the 70s and the 80s%. Percent. It's, a, it's an incredibly well-received and well-thought-of movie. Well-received. Uh, got some quotes here. From Roger Ebert, at the end of the day, it's Robert Downey Jr. who powers the liftoff separating this from most other superhero movies. AV Club said, Iron Man is the rare comic book movie that makes the prospect of a sequel seem like a promise instead of a threat. That's really funny. <laughs> like that. The Wall Street Journal said, the gadgetry is absolutely dazzling. The action is mostly exhilarating. The comedy is scintillating. <laughs> And the whole enormous enterprise throbs with dramatic energy. Thanks for joining us as we revisit some of our favourite moments from Marvel vs. Marvel. Don't forget our full-length episodes are jam-packed with hours of Marvel trivia, behind-the-page, behind-the-scenes and comic book Marvel history. 